Good morning, dear colleagues. A very warm welcome in a new week. Today is Monday, the 3rd of November. No, actually, it's Friday. It's after about holiday, so sorry. Today is Friday, the 3rd of November, 2023. It's 11 o'clock in the morning, and I'm very pleased to introduce Eric Tuchtfeld to you, who is a research fellow at the Max Planck Institute for Comparative Public Law and International Law in Heidelberg, and he's also an associate editor at um, a publication that has been discussed here quite recently and quite intensely, which is the Verfassungsblock. And that's also the reason why um, I invited him, because Eric um, is an author, is the author of a very, very interesting uh, piece on freedom of expression, freedom of the media versus data protection versus fight against hate speech and fight uh, against online crime. This publication is called um, Be Careful What You Wish For. It's published on, in Verfassungsblock, uh, where, as I said, um, Eric also serves as um, an associate editor. Um, and it's a very, very relevant publication for quite some of the topics we have been dealing uh, with here in this blog um, quite frequently. Uh, this is his homepage uh, at the Max Planck Institute. I will um, just refer to this also very briefly because you find all the relevant publications um, of Eric and people he works with there, uh, including um, conference papers uh, and, and, and articles in particular but also including something where I would really like to mention um, that explicitly, um, including a publication which is, in my view, really a singular piece of work. I, I, I'm not aware of anything trying something similar. Uh, this is this publication, which is about a documentary of all, or at least most of the relevant case law on content moderation and freedom of expression. So uh, on top of what we'll be uh, talking about here, um, I would really, really um, invite you to, to take a closer look into this because uh, what you see here is um, a, a really good overview about uh, many, many cases in many, many legislations about um, the issues we will be discussing here. Um, so that uh, the two cases we might probably have a closer look uh, into today because of the publication um, that I was mentioning before, um, that's Töchling versus Austria on the one hand and Sanchez versus France on the other hand are clearly not the only ones to talk about. So you will learn from this uh, huge paper here that if you want to dig deeper into this, it's really like a rabbit hole. You will end up in, in dozens or hundreds of cases. And, and that's a very, very good starting point into this, um, into this rabbit hole. Eric, thank you so much for coming. Um, I mean, um, let us start with the easiest question, which is, why did you write this? And what is, in your view, the main lesson to take with this text on be careful what you wish for? Well, first of all, thanks a lot for the invitation. It's a great pleasure to be here in your in your podcast. Uh, and I must admit, uh, it has been one of the kindest introductions I've ever heard about myself. <laughs> so thanks a lot for that. Um, why did I write this, this piece in the Verfassungsbook? So there were several recent um, judgments by the European Court of Human Rights uh, in which the court in obiter dicta, so without the actual need to um, to take a stance on it, mentioned that it is in favor or that it is desired to, um, in that, uh, to that platforms have some kind of filter system. And this was first in Sanchez, where it was actually to some, to some, this, uh, to some extent totally unrelated. And uh, now in Zöchling, where it was um, even more related to the actual case, but still 
only mentioned as an obiter dictum and not as a necessary uh, requirement to um, fulfill human rights, positive human rights obligations. And I think that it's, it is kind of very some, that's why, why I also um, titled it with be careful what you wish for, when in human rights court um, mentions filter obligations which have been heavily disputed in the, uh, in the last years because what filter systems do when they filter content before it is actually published is pretty close to what at least our German uh, definition, classical def definition of censorship is. So a preemptive um, evaluation of content uh, with regard to its lawfulness. And I think that this is, this is a problematic uh, turn the, the court has taken in its recent decisions. So, and I felt like there's, there's, uh, there's not a lot of, of attention on it. So I wrote this piece um, to bring some attention to this, um, in my, my opinion, varying statements and to also spark a debate is about if that really is something uh, we should wish for um, or if in particular from a human rights perspective, from a freedom of expression perspective, other mechanisms to fight hate speech are more uh, effective and more desirable um, to um, also still uh, enhance freedom of expression while protecting personality rights in the digital space. Oh, I think you're still muted. Oh, I'm still muted. One of the funny things uh, that happened after you having written this piece is that, um, I mean, the debate has in a way come to everybody's attention because one of the, I would assume at least, because one of the officials uh, within the European Union being in charge of this in particular, the Digital Services Act, which is the EU attempt, the most recent EU attempt to try to find an equilibrium between freedom of speech and um, and fight against hate on the internet. So this representative, which is Thierry Breton, who is the commissioner in charge of the enforcement of the DSA, started to write letters, very interesting letters, um, to uh, major platforms, um, X, um, to Twitter, and and others, um, reminding them of the Digital Services Act and um, the obligations coming with the Digital Services Act um, after the the beginning of the war uh, in Israel and the attack by the Hamas on Israel just recently. And when you read this um, this letter that came into very heavy criticism quite quickly as you as you know um you you have the impression i have the impression at least that the overall mainstream story um that is told by um people like breton is that the problem we have on the internet is not so much that we have a freedom of speech problem there that people are not able to say what they want to say and that censorship is a problem but that the opposite is a problem which is um, we have too much hate, we have too much disinformation, etc. on the internet. And what I find really interesting in your paper is that you're, pay you're taking the other point, right? You are making the other point, which is, well, actually, of course, there is a problem with hate and there is a problem with disinformation, but we need to take things serious there and separate them and legally uh, treat them properly and differently according to what is on, on the table. But that we also have the other problem, which is we need to be careful that we do not uh, fall into a censorship trap. Um, 
That is I think exactly I, right. If I, yeah, if I might yeah, jump I in there, you, you you probably read uh, Breton's paper or Breton's letter also with great interest. Would you would you like to comment on this also in in relation to your article and to your other work? Yeah, yeah, most definitely. Um, first of all, I want to, as you mentioned already, but I want to emphasize that I do not deny that there's a problem with hate speech and disinformation uh, in the internet, and that this is a serious, uh, serious and troubling problem. I'm just um, a little bit afraid or, or concerned that the, that the measures taken by, for example, the European Commission right now, in particular, Euro, uh, uh, European Commissioner Breton, uh, are the right ones. They want to show their, their powerful fist, their strong fist, uh, towards rogue social networks, and obviously, in particular, uh, X and uh, Twitter with um, Elon Musk as somebody who is a very um, very prominent figure and uh, also in my personal opinion a very difficult uh, figure and it shows that um, that our, our digital public spaces should not be ruled by um, by these kind of persons in my personal opinion that is what I think is the motivation what drives in particular Breton which I mean he's not simply acting towards uh, acts towards Twitter but he's acting in a very particular way in this uh, he's publishing open letters uh, on, on the network itself, the network it criticizes, he criticizes, he's using for publishing open letters to the CEO. I think this is um, problematic from, from a variety of, of reasons. First of all, um, what he's mentioning in the letter is, is quite concerning from a legal point of view, because he's, for example, equating uh, disinformation with illegal content. And those two are separate categories. Both are concerning. But in most of the cases, what is disinformation is not illegal. What is illegal is often, I mean, at least illegal hate speech. There's also a lot of hate speech, um, which is so-called, um, um, uh, wait, and these are, uh, ah, now I'm lacking it. There's a very nice phrase, uh, awful but lawful. That is what I was uh, looking for, awful but lawful content. So there's a lot of hate speech, which is not even illegal. But there is also a lot of hate speech, which is, which is clearly illegal. And you can tackle this, and uh, platforms are obliged uh, to, uh, to take it down, at, at least uh, when, when they receive reports about such kind of hate speech. But when it comes to disinformation, in most jurisdictions, at least in the European Union, disinformation is lawful. It is simply not illegal to lie. It is, might be illegal when it, um, when it concerns, for example, uh, defamation, uh, and in particular in Germany, also when it comes to the denial of the Holocaust. But apart from that, when I um, tell the public that um, COVID masks do not work, obviously that is wrong, but it is not a, not, in, not a crime, and it's also not prohibited to say something like that. And it, but it is still concerning, and we need to figure out how to uh, address these kind of issues in a democratic society, in a liberal society. But it is most probably uh, not the right way to simply uh, give the power to governments. And I mean, the European Commission is the European government uh, to decide what kind of um, content they deem not to be true, uh, um, what kind of content should be simply removed from the platforms. And this equation uh, uh, Breton is, is doing in his letters, equating illegal content, which is mainly hate speech in, from a legal perspective and disinformation is uh, really troublesome because as we all know the, the, the fight for truth and the defini definition of what is truth in a democratic society is something which needs to be uh, which needs to be built bottom up so uh, the society itself must um, must go into a debate must 
exchange arguments and then also decide what is the truth, what is the narrative they are following. And it must not be governments who decide what what is right and what is wrong, what is truth and what is lie. Yeah. So certainly, uh, this uh, Breton letter is a very good example for the for the blurring out of the differentiation between uh, between illegal content and awful but lawful content. And and Breton is certainly not stupid. So I think politically, uh, this is done on purpose in a way, right? So so there there, there is a message behind this, or there might be a message behind this. Um, to, also, perhaps to to foster the understanding or at least the knowledge about the DSA via this instrument. Because of course, uh, in this war, everyone is now concerned about, every. really everyone is concerned about the amount of disinformation coming, uh, in particular on Twitter and other platforms. It's, it's, it has become completely impossible to, to get an appropriate picture about what's really happening in in, in important areas of the world. And, and this problem that is understandable to everyone is a very good instrument then to, to make an argument that we need legislation in the domain and that the DSA um, is the right answer to this problem. However, as, as one needs to know, uh, the DSA is neither new. I mean, most parts of what we see there um, are already in the e-commerce directive. Um, nor is it really dealing with disinformation in the sense of that it needs to be put off the internet. It's more, um, I mean, things that need to be put off after a notice and takedown uh, procedure are illegal content. So something which is clearly, um, obviously, uh, too uh, illegal. And 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 the interesting now, coming back to your paper, the inter in my view, one of the interesting aspects of the paper is that you are making this point um, very, very clearly um, that, that first, this is not new, so that we have quite some um, um, traditions here, both in the US, uh, but also in particular in Europe with the e-commerce directive, but that also we have some kind of both views in the European court. So on the one hand, we have the European court um, um, in, 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 in matters of, I mean, the European court of the European Union in matters of interpretation of the e-commerce directive and possibly um, the, another Austrian case, Glavishnik uh, Pistek uh, uh, would be the one to mention here. And on the other hand, we have the court in Strasbourg dealing with the Convention on Human Rights having a very at least according to you, a very different approach than one would expect with an EU background on the matter. May I ask you perhaps to, to, to make the point in how far in your view the European Court on Human Rights um, is not really in line with the EU tradition on dealing with the matter, um, to, to make this argument perhaps a little bit more clear to the audience than it is at the moment? Yes, yes, of course. Obviously, because I don't ask the, the right questions yet, but hopefully we will come there, right? <laughs> yes, yes, of course, I'd love to. Um, so I think it's important to understand the background uh, from where we're mm -hmm. coming from and the regulation of platforms, uh, which is um, cl classically the, the regulation of hosting services. So there were always uh, liability exemptions for them there. We have a very prominent uh, liability exemption in the United States from the 90s, section 200. 30, which basically says there's no liability at all for platforms, which uh, le which leads to to um, to a situation where they have the power to take down or to leave any content 
uh, as they wish on their platforms. And this is uh, also called the, the, I think, 23 words. Section 230 mm -hmm. contains uh, 23 words, if I'm not mistaken. 26, 23, 26, 26, yeah. That's the 26 <laughs> words uh, which yeah. created the internet. Uh, because they are so important, because the rise of, of social platforms, as we know them today, um, can only be explained by, by taking a look at this liability exemption, because you can only offer your services to other and let them upload content as they wish. And today it's, it's billions of users uh, uploading um, their, their personal content on these platforms when you, when you are, um, when you are not, not liable for that, when they can upload whatever they want, because if it's illegal, Nobody can come to you and ask uh, and ask you to to pay them uh, damages uh, because some content which has been published on your platform by another entity by a user um, is uh, is Ill illegal or violating their rights. And only because you have these, this kind of liability exemption, the platforms as they are uh, at the moment um, could gain uh, that much um, uh, such a big market share and uh, be a be a public space basically for so many users. Um, in Europe, uh, we have taken a slightly different stance. So there was never this, like, more or less. Uh, there are some ex uh, exceptions, but I won't go into too much detail into the US American law. Um, but there's never been this approach of a more or less absolute exemption. So there was always the idea of the notice and take down procedure. So uh, a platform is not liable as long as it takes down the, co the illegal content after it has been noticed. So you don't have to monitor. Uh, the content. This is very important, the prohibition or, or no obligation of general monitoring. You don't have to monitor all the content which is on your platform, but once uh, you, you receive a notification as platform, you have to act. You have to evaluate it from a legal point of view. And if you come to the conclusion that it is illegal, uh, then you have to take it down. Otherwise, you become liable. So that is the background, where we're coming from, which is very important for the um, Web 2.0, the social web as we know it uh, today. And then there was the Delphi case by the European Court of Human Rights, where a news platform, actually, it's really interesting that this has never been this big social platforms in these cases, um, apart from Blavishnik and then the European Court of Justice. But uh, in particular, before the European Court of Human Rights, it was always like kind of smaller news portals, which had only national reach. So there was the Delphi case in 2013, uh, before the European Court of uh, Human Rights, later confirmed in 2014. Uh, 15, if I'm not mistaken, um, but the first judgment in 2013, and there the courts in Estonia held um, the news platform liable for uh, not removing illegal content, illegal comments, hate speech proactively. And that is something which is rather not compatible in my point of uh, from my point of view with European Union law. But that was not the question before the European Court of Human Rights. The European Court of Human Rights had to decide if such an obligation to monitor proactively the comments and thus the content on your uh, platform uh, is in violation of the European Convention uh, on Human Rights. And uh, the European Court of Human Rights said that there is no human rights um, prohibition for a state to oblige its platforms to do such monitoring. So it, it gave them, it gave the states the option to establish some uh, these kind of obligations. So we, we really have to, ha to, to have in mind that these are two separate but interconnected legal regimes. We have the European Convention on Human Rights and we have uh, the European Union law with the e-commerce directive in the past, and the Digital Services Act uh, now. 
And these are separate but interconnected because both courts, in particular the European Court of Justice for European Union law, takes into account what is happening in Strasbourg um, with the European Court of Human Rights. So, as I said, in Delphi, the European Court of Human Rights decided, okay, uh, platforms can be obliged to monitor um, their content from a human rights perspective, but it did not say that platforms have to be obliged, that there is a mandatory uh, human rights obligation to monitor content. Um, yeah, so that was, that was the situation for many years. Um, European um, uh, human rights law uh, allowed an obligation to monitor content, but uh, at least member states of the European Union, one has to have in mind the European Convention and its member states is way, is way bigger than the European Union with its 47 member states, European Union only 27. Um, so, um, but the European Union law, uh, member states of the European Union, uh, they were prohibited to establish such a general monitoring obligation because of the e-commerce directive, so European Union law. So that was the situation. It was kind of a standoff. Actually, there was no um, conflict between these two legal regimes. They had like different um, different stances on this issue, but they were compatible with each other. Mm -hmm. And now the European Court of Human Rights um, said in in Sanchez for the first time and in so-called obita dictum, so uh, in a reasoning which is not important, which is not like um, like carrying uh, the decision. Uh, uh, that um, uh, that it is at least uh, that there can be. I think the uh, the formulation I, I opened it myself was that there uh, can be little doubt uh, that a minimum degree of subsequent uh, subsequent moderation or and this is important automatic filtering would be desirable in order to identify clearly unlawful comments as quickly as possible. So what the court here says is that there is that it, uh, it can only it can also it is uh, paragraph 190 in the, in the Sanchez, Sanchez uh, judgment. Um, so what the court here says that there is it is desirable from a human rights perspective to enable automatic filtering, something which is at least I mean desirable is a is still a weak statement. This becomes clearer in Zöchling. Uh, this mm -hmm. was why I used Zöchling as um, as very concrete um, point of um, starting point for my for my blog post. Um, but that automatic filtering is desirable. That would still be um, to some extent compatible with uh, with European Union law because platforms, while they cannot be obliged to look for um, illegal content, they are free to do so. And many platforms do that. Of course, when it comes to, um, when it comes to, in particular, when it comes to so-called CSIM, so child sexual abuse material, they have automatic filtering systems in place because they don't want to wait for for reports to take it down, but they want to do it proactively because they have an interest to not have such kind of content on the platforms. Mm -hmm. um, but what Sanchez and also Trechling was about uh, was hate speech. And mm -hmm. what defines hate, hate speech is incredibly difficult. We had here in Germany, we had the so-called Kühners cases, where dozens of lawyers, well-educated well judges, um, had very different interpretations of what uh, constitutes illegal hate speech. So it's very difficult. It's very much context-related. And now there's a human rights court uh, who says, OK, let us do the machines. 
that mm -hmm. is do automatic uh, that is this should be done via automatic filtering and mm -hmm. it becomes and there's the conflict starts in uh, because sanchez was a case about the obligations of a politician to take care of its own facebook mm -hmm. wall uh, on its mm -hmm. own facebook posts and its comments but in Schöchling, it was about the obligation of the state to uh, hold um, a platform liable if it does not have such kind of uh, filtering systems in place. And this means that the court seems to uh, be on the opinion that there is a positive human rights obligation to establish automatic filtering systems for the states so that the states have to oblige platforms um, via their, their own national law to um, create automatic filtering systems. And this would clearly be in conflict with European Union law because European Union law, yeah, you, you're um, highlighting it right now, it's paragraph 13 in the, in the Zwechling case, European Union law prohibits um, the member states from establishing such an obligation. And mm -hmm. this, this is going to be quite difficult to find an equilibrium between these different legal regimes, these different legal obligations. And from my point of view, it is right and it is better what the democratic legislature, the, the democratic legislation has um, done in the e-commerce directive and also in the DSA to make clear we can in the internet as it works and as we want it to work, uh, we need to give users the possibility to publish their content and there shouldn't be any kind of preemptive censorship with establishing some kind of control if the content uh, they would like to put out there is illegal uh, is illegal or is legal in advance. Mm -hmm. Wonderful, Eric. Thank you for summarizing this. May I kindly challenge this now a little, if you if I may, right? Just for 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 the purpose of this meeting here. So the the, the first remark I would like to share with you is that starting with the very beginning and the um, the US legislation and then also the e-commerce directive, as you said, the US legislation, which by the way, interestingly, was also already about children's protection on the internet. So that is some kind of, you know, 30 years now ago and still on the agenda. So as you as you put it, this was the 26 words that that invented the Internet, one could say. Uh, one could also say the 26 words which brought us this dystopian world of social media bubbles without any media controlling that anymore. Right. So because the 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 rise of all the social media channels, as you as you know, uh, came with a decline of the traditional media services in parallel to this. And in traditional media services, we've seen for many years a very clear point, which is if, if you are a media service and you publish something, no matter whether it's you writing it or whether it's one of your readers, you are fully liable that this is in compliance with everything. So, so one could argue, and I think quite some of the traditional media houses still argue, that the whole starting point was an error and that we should go back to something um, which is now 30 years old and, and reinvent the internet in the sense of that the traditional media rules also apply there. And nobody from any media house would call that censorship. They would say it's responsibility or, or, or professional um, ethics or whatsoever. So that would be my first mm -hmm. issue where I would really like to hear your comments. And the second issue I, is the following. I completely share with you, I, I very much share with you, uh, your impression 
at uh, the, the Court on Human Rights has some kind of reading here, in particular in circling, going into the direction that a social media platform should take care of this content moderation issue because they caused the problem by some kind of unknown uh, miraculous IT infrastructure that is not invented yet. Um, so I fully agree with you. I think I also think, I mean, you see this also, by the way, in my view, at least in the uh, in the in the decision of Klavishnik Piszczek of the European Court, um, that uh, that they also seem to believe that there is some kind of superpower out there allowing to understand the meaning of a statement with automated means without really giving us any indication how this should work, in particular because it's impossible, or at least to the very best of my knowledge, impossible to fully take context into consideration by automated means when you're talking about political speech and that this is very, very difficult. So the question now coming is, what would be the alternative then if one if one is of the opinion, just like the European Court of Human Rights seems to be, that there needs to be some kind of content moderation by a miraculous superpower of IT, if that is not existing? Would it then be that we need millions of people reading everything so that no longer there would be any social media service available because you can't pay for this? Or would it be that we need to change the law? Mm -hmm. Um, well, with regard to the first point, I mean, of mm -hmm. course, you could simply argue that social uh, social media um, did not like benefit the world. I mean, this is a very um, it's a highly disputed topic. If uh, the the rise of social platforms, but have, that's not so uh, much my point here. My point is that this advantage, this competitive advantage, that you could argue as Facebook that you don't need to care about what people are doing on your platform, ruined traditional media or was one of the factors ruining traditional media i mean there are other factors too but that is something which is i would call it a level playing field it's not so much about whether meta did anything good for the world right that's another topic it's more about is there or was there a level playing field in this new market and one could argue that there wasn't or there isn't and that this is a misconception yeah well the the the, the question to me well first of all Facebook, uh, Twitter, and others—they have to care, right? Mm -hmm. So it's when we—I mean, let's take the the U.S. American legal situation and let's put it away for a moment and think about the situation in Europe. So there has been since more than 20 years there's the notice and checkdown mechanism. So whenever uh, Facebook is notified, so any user on the platform—I mean, there's a billion users—if any user is um, somehow disturbed by a piece of content and reports it to Facebook. Facebook is liable for this content if it's illegal, if it doesn't take any kind of action. So there was never the situation in the European Union where these social platforms could simply not care. They could, in fact, I mean, that was like, I mean, there is probably a difference between between the law and how the law is, is executed. And I think for um, quite uh, for a long time, the, the, there was a, a lack of execution of these laws. Um, I mean, all the, the decisions we are talking about are from the last five, six years, while the law stands as it is for roughly 25 years. Um, mm -hmm. So somehow courts didn't care or, or supervisory authorities didn't care or there was simply no kind of, of jurisprudence on this. But I would try to push back this narrative, um, which is taken by some that 
that platforms were not liable at all in the European Union before now the DSA came or something else. We always yeah. have notice and take down. Yeah. If I may, however, uh, sure, true. Um, and but there are, as you know, there are thousands of complaints that that didn't really work, and there are many cases that I could cite now indicating that it didn't really work in the sense of that uh, somebody who was the victim of um, of illegal speech on the internet got that got that content down easily and got um, some kind of uh, case in front of a national court easily. That was not the case. But that's not so much my point here. My point is there is a difference if you are if you are a flea market and you argue mm -hmm. I don't I put I I offer the the possibility to do whatever you want on that flea market and just in case that somebody starts selling drugs and just in case somebody starts selling drugs and I get aware of this I will start chasing this person and unfortunately i will not succeed because it's a different legislation or i don't know data protection or whatever argument that's fundamentally different from i'm a traditional news editor i need to pay 20 people working for me because i need to take the responsibility for the content that is out there helping people to put things into order which is what media normally is doing and including also one of the 20 guys working for me who is doing nothing else but reading letters to the editor, deciding on whether they should be published and whether they are worth being published and whether they are legal, etc. And that's a different game. And the problem now, one could argue, is perhaps it's a different game, at least legally it certainly was a different game, but the outcome of this that we see now in 2023 is that one of the two games is clearly dominating the others, the other in a way that is not really beneficial to society, one could say, right? <laughs> and then one could say, okay, let's go back to the starting point, which is it's one game and not two, and we need to regulate them similarly. And this is not really a problem of censorship. It's a problem about how do we organize information in a Western society? Yeah, I mean, why why I started my my last answer with uh, the question is is social media good or not for the society? Is because I think it's basically on the question um, who publishes content, and if it's just an, a selected um, group of editors like it is with a traditional newspaper, or if it's eventually eventually and possibly everyone how it is on social platforms, and we can come to the conclusion that it shouldn't be everyone. I mean, everybody, like when I'm publishing a piece of content on social media, of course, I am personally um, liable for that. Mm -hmm. um, but if we would change the system that every that platforms are liable for every piece of content on their, like on, on their platforms, then social media simply wouldn't exist as it does. And one could argue, I don't think that it's totally like, uh, um, like an absurd thought that social media, the rise of social platforms, maybe did not benefit society. Mm. Um, but it is not my personal uh, conviction, because I also think that we have all these these movements, which also started in uh, social media and where social media was very important for a democratic uprise. One could think of Black Lives Matter, and one can think of Fridays for Future, which of course is a very strong digital element uh, as well. We had all the hope in the Arab Spring and all of these kind of movements, which which at least also accrue to a substantial amount on social media, were only possible because platforms didn't have 
uh, didn't have to check the legality of every single piece of content before they publish it. So because everybody becomes a publisher, um, there this uh, I think also I, I think there are a lot of negative effects, and I don't think I'm not arguing for um, a world where there is no content moderation. Uh, I do think that content moderation is very important, that it must be improved, and that the current situation also um, is in, in very often it is the, the poorest people and the poorest countries who are uh, who are doing the dirty work here. Uh, poor people in the Philippines who have to check. Uh, on the content which is published and that this system is simply not fair. Um, but I don't think that the liability problem is actually the, the, the problem which led to the situation where we, all, where, where we are with hate speech um, and with this aggressive online debate. I think it is too easy to simply point uh, towards the, 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 the difficulties with notice and takedown um, to make yeah. it responsible for the online discourse we have at the moment. Yeah, let me just, if I may, make two more points here, and then let's perhaps yeah. go to the other question because that's more related to your article, which is the 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 more important thing here. But two more minor report, minor remarks here. The first one is you're completely right with the Arab Spring and all this. On the other hand, one must also state that we are, as Europeans, in the in a situation now that the existing governance has brought us into a situation where traditional European media companies are clearly struggling. Many of them go bankrupt, as you know. And on the other hand, we have mainly US or Chinese-driven social media platforms dominating the whole market um, and, and not necessarily. I mean, this is one of the, in my view, at least one of the reasons why, why uh, Breton started writing these letters, not necessarily being too interested in, in European values and European governance structures and all this. I mean, one of the funny reactions on the Breton letter was Mr. Musk answering that he doesn't really even know what what Breton is is talking about right I mean this is the utmost uh disaster in my view a politician can run into that one of the people you want to target with your legislation tells you in public uh with millions of people reading it listen I don't know what you're talking about and I don't really care right so th th that's just the one point right we are in a situation where Europe is really struggling with this and um and and the uh, the second point i don't know whether i really buy the argument that if we didn't have section 230 and the e-commerce directive there wouldn't be no so there wouldn't be any social media because of course there's plenty of space in between for example just to mention one thing here one of the reasons why we have so many problems on x in my view is or not only in my view, but also in my view, is that there are so many people there who are not known, right? There are pseudonyms, bots, whatever, on that platform, in particular bots, many of them run by, potentially run by military organizations having strategic geopolitical goals with this. And it would have been very simple to say, I mean, in theory, it would have been very simple to say, listen, if you are a platform and you want a liability exemption, the minimum re we require is that you identify whether the person registering on your platform is actually a person and not a bot network, right? So that just to mention one thing here, right? Um, so I'm not sure whether the argument, if we if we had gone the other way, we wouldn't have any social media uh, is, is, is really completely convincing. Um, well, it's, you, you, I mean, it's, it's a very interesting discussion. I really, really enjoy it. Um, uh, to, 
some some minor thoughts on this. Um, the first one would be on anonymous. I mean, you you didn't say that you're against the anonymous use of. Uh, oh, I of didn't social with, with, on purpose. I didn't because yeah. I didn't want okay. to start this real name debate and so. So I made another point, which is please clarify whether it's a human. But how would that look like? In practice, I mean, there are plenty of. I mean, I, not my business, but I know that there are quite some solutions out there on the internet trying to identify whether the thing sitting in front of a computer is a human, right? You do these stupid things with, you know, identify the horses or, you know, <laughs> uh, divide forty-two through seven. What's the outcome? And all this, all of us are aware of this. And the purpose behind this is. Let's see whether it's a human sitting behind that machine, right? And um, I mean, I, I don't know whether that, that would have needed or whether that would help at all, right? But it would be something one could consider as being something a platform should take into consideration, not leaving it completely up to them whether or not it's it's a bot and not really leaving it up to them, telling us then, listen, I'm sorry, we have a problem here, but we can't solve it because we don't know with whom we have a contractual relation here. Well, that, that is uh, that is a fair point, and I have no objections against uh, the use of captchas. I mean, I, they're really bothering me, and I always feel that it's kind of an insult when a machine yeah. tests me if I'm uh, human or not. But uh, apart from that, I have no objection, objections against the use of captchas um, to verify if somebody is human or not. But I do actually think uh, that they are used by the platforms already, and that they have mechanisms in place to try to uh, stop bot behavior because they don't like it. It doesn't bring them any ad revenue. That is what they're actually interested in. I think we can, what is their business model? Their business model is selling ads and bots yeah, do not click on ads. Sorry, I don't want to interrupt you. I think the, the but and, and I don't want to be offensive here, but I'm, I think, um, um, I mean, of course the business model is selling ads, but the key indicator about selling ads is how many users you are have and growth rates is about one of the, most prominent factors of success in social media. So I think my priority, if I were a, someone deciding in any of those networks, I, I would say, listen, we need to to have uh, the best possible growth rate and let's not so much take care about whether it's a bot or a human. And just to come up with two or three more examples of this, I mean, uh, for example, um, as you know, all of them have a theoretical age limit, which is do not go on the platform if you are younger than 13. And as you also know, all of them don't really care. I mean, the only thing that you need to do is to put in another age there and that's it. End of story. Everyone below 13 at the moment is using TikTok. I mean, I, I don't think that there's any European kid out there under 13, let's say between 12 and 13, not having had any kind of contact with all those platforms not being made for them. And I'm not yet talking about pornography here, which is another huge area, obviously, where we have the same problem. And the third problem, just to indicate the third one here is the real name problem, right? I mean, Facebook, for example, has a very long tradition in indicating you need to be there with your own name and please don't use a pseudonym. And at the same time, not really enforcing this, right? You can, there are plenty of people using a pseudonym or being a dog or whatever on Facebook in contradiction with their own terms and conditions. So um, there is a, the only point that I want to make here is, I don't think that it's that simple that if we hadn't had the e-commerce directive or section 230, the internet would look completely different. That's that's what I want to say. Okay. Um, 
Um, Sorry. I respectfully <laughs> disagree. I respectfully because disagree. I think it is yeah. Uh, yeah. quite important. I, I do. I'm sharing all your concerns. Yeah. Uh, honestly, I'm sharing the concerns you have uh, with regard to age-appropriate design of platforms. Uh, age verification is a very sensitive issue because I think that uh, anonymous accounts or being able to uh, to act anonymously on the internet is is crucial to freedom of expression because the question is for who. For whom do we need freedom of expression? And also, who's affected the most by hate speech at the moment? It's mm -hmm. the answer to both is marginal, uh, marginalized communities. And they, who in particular now need protection against the attacks uh, of hate speech they are suffering from, um, they are the same who also need the protection of anonymity um, to be able to express themselves because other, otherwise they, they might uh, suffer repercussions. Mm -hmm. Um, that is quasi a, a short perspective on the question of real name systems on any kind of verification system. I do not think that because of that, any kind of verification system is bad. I just think that you have to have in mind for whom are you actually um, establishing these kind of systems and yeah. are you actually doing them a favor when um, offering a system, uh, a system like, uh, like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that while while liability exempts, exemptions are crucial uh, for uh, for the development of the internet as we have it today, um, at the same time there's a big difference between Section 230 and the e-commerce directive and notice and take down. And um, yeah, this narrative of the uh, I mean there there might have been a complete liability and absolute liability exemption uh, for 15 20 years in practice, mm -hmm. uh, but that was not so. Or maybe it was also a problem of the law, but I mean, from a theoretical standpoint, the law um, allowed also systematic takedowns. I mean, Glavishnik, you've mentioned to it, you've mentioned it already, was was a decision under the e-commerce directive, a law which then stands stood for 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 20 years. But it took us 20 years to have such such a decision. Um, so the question is. Yeah, I think it's where you say it's not that easy to say it uh, yeah. without uh, the e-commerce directive. We wouldn't have social media as we have it uh, right now. I think it's a bit too easy to say it's the liability exemptions are the big problem, the main problem we have when it comes to the online discourse as it is right now. Yeah, I, can, I, I certainly very much agree with this, certainly. Perhaps, uh, if I may, Eric, should we come back to the second point, which is the, the, the question about uh, the technicalities of doing this, right? So this content moderation and the yeah. uh, and the statement that the, both courts, in my view, at least have a rather naive understanding about how automated mm -hmm. um, content moderation should look like, and I, I or could look like. And I, I read your paper also buying this argument, which is uh, it's not that simple, right? So content moderation by automated means doesn't work um, in the way lawyers think that it should work my question then was what is the alternative then um, if we don't want to have millions of people in 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 the global south uh, being very poorly paid or not paid at all um, and for for content moderation of content that nobody wants to see is then the only alternative wouldn't then be the only alternative that we have uh, to change the law coming yeah, back this to is... the point we made before mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a very good and definitely the most difficult question. What is the alternative? Um, I must admit that I personally uh, come more and more to the conclusion that uh, 
Um, and uh, this might be something you, you you sympathize with after the discussion we just had the last 20 minutes, uh, that global networks are not the solution. Uh, that uh, global networks, global social media platforms uh, do not benefit society and that uh, they are, they are one-size-fits-all approach. I mean, there's one set of rules which is uh, established in the Silicon Valley and which, of course, uh, incorporates their own values, but not the values of Europe and, in particular, not the values of cultures and states uh, all all around the world who are all using these kind of platforms um that uh, this is this is basically the main problem or that or we might also experience maybe an end of the global platforms as they have existed the last uh, 20 years but the question is what is the alternative alternative what is now to come i personally uh, i am uh, quite quite a big fan at least theoretically of what is called the the fediverse uh, where we have um, a, a multitude of, of different um, so-called instances who then can talk to each other, but that you have smaller communities who s uh, set up their own set of rules, um, how they want uh, their content to be moderated uh, on their platforms, and which also, in my experience at least, leads to less, uh, to, to a decrease of all these problems because there's uh, while it's not, an, uh, while it still is like anonymous in the way that you don't know the real the real names of other accounts, it's smaller communities who somehow have a sense of belonging together, a sense of solidarity. So there's a lack of aggression, uh, or there's less aggression than it is on these global platforms where you simply scream at strangers. Um, so I, I think this might be a different structure of the social web. It might um, might help um, to to solve these kind. Of problems. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I I don't think that this this will be the the the, the mm -hmm. final solution uh, for for all the problems. And of course, we also need. Uh, and of course, I think there are cases where automa uh, um, automated um, recognition of illegal content might make sense in a sense that there's still some kind of human overview if it is a false positive or if it's uh, if it's correct. For example, when mm -hmm. it comes to the distribution of child sexual abuse material um, but I strongly oppose it in the in the area of um, of expression in a in a written way because understanding text and understanding statements statements is extremely context sensitive and when you simply prohibit certain slurs or certain insults people will still be able to insult them other uh, to, uh, to insult each other simply by becoming more creative this is something we see everywhere for example when it comes to online gaming, where these, um, this censorship, I would call it, or this blocking of particular words is very common. People have no problem at insulting each other still. So it's, it, it remains a social problem. And while, of course, our technical infrastructure also leads to particular social structures, I think uh, it is too easy to simply point at a particular uh, technolo uh, technology to solve this issue, as the courts seem to do it in their recent decisions yeah true just one remark if i may to the fediverse so uh, just like you i was very enthusiastic and positive about uh, mastodon appearing last year and and I, I was really one of the early adopters i think however what i see now and you certainly do the same is that everyone is no actually quite a few people got there and many of them now are running to blue sky um, or leaving directly to blue sky which is just another mainly us driven uh, <laughs> monopoly kind way of dealing with the fediverse right so i'm i'm, I'm i share your views but i'm not that 
that optimistic about whether the argument is decisive for quite some of the users. Uh, Eric, one point that I still want to discuss with you, if I may, uh, and, and that comes back to you uh, making quite some interesting legal arguments in this paper. I think one of the really interesting aspects is that you are that you are working out that there is a fundamental difference in the understanding between the European Court and Human Rights on the one hand and the European Court the Court of the European Union on the other hand in 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 the understanding of whether or not there should be some kind of content moderation without going into any further details now because we discussed this already my question now is whether you think that this conflict if it is there calls for a new way and if so, is this new way possible under the existing legal framework, a new way how those two courts should align their points of view and their jurisdiction? Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's uh, very difficult. I mean, my impression is that the European Court of Human Rights didn't know what it, what it did. Uh, this was... Uh, um, a decision taken by um, only three courts, uh, uh, three judges, because it, it the court felt like it is on established on an established field here, like there is clear jurisprudence um, on it, and there's a little need to discuss um, to discuss this in, to discuss this in a bigger setting. And I strongly disagree. It really gives me the impression that the court didn't do it didn't know what it actually is doing there, or that it didn't. Um, like bring the had the had the impression that this is some kind of revolutionary approach uh, to media liability as it is in my opinion. So what I'm also trying with this article is uh, to point towards this uh, um, towards the situation that there is a fundamental conflict, and my hope is that the courts are reading it and that they at least see the conflict and that they um, act with more caution in in possible future cases and somehow position themselves towards the jurisprudence of the respective other court. court. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, in the last part of my of, of the article, I um, do shortly speak about possible uh, interpretations, which are sparks of hope, as I uh, noticed, to align these two approaches. One would be to understand for, uh, well, first of all, it is an obiter dictum, right? So it's not mm -hmm. legally binding in a narrow sense. The court would have to confirm these, these findings, these rulings, in another decision to make it a legal obligation for all um, member states of the Council of Europe, um, which are member state parties uh, to the European Convention of Human Rights. Um, the second thing is, I mean, it talks about automatic filtering uh, auto and a subsequent moderation. Subsequent moderation is clear. There is a need and it is very much desirable that there is subsequent moderation. I would argue it should be done by humans. Um, but combining these two approaches could lead to a situation where we understand automatic filtering or only as some kind of flagging system that a content is flagged, which is somewhat problematic, and then the actual, um, piece, uh, the actual moderation is carried out by a human uh, moderator and is also not done preemptively before the content is published. Because this is, from a, in particular from a German perspective, this is the problem. Problem is not that content is removed or not. The problem is that it should be checked before it is uh, published, uh, which is what we understand when there's a state obligation to uh, to check on content before it is, um, or to to evaluate uh, the legality of content before it is published. This is what we understand censorship as from as a censorship from a German perspective, 
but that is subsequent moderation and that uh, also automatic filtering mainly has the purpose of tagging uh, and to filter like do some kind of pre-filtering which is then um, later um, be uh, evaluated by human moderators and they decide if a content should be should be removed or, uh, or not i think such such a reading would be possible uh, of the european Co uh, court of human rights judgment and would align uh, with recent judgments of the european court of justice and also the digital services act so let's see whether this is the way it's going <laughs> will be very interesting to see and and i mean one of the one of the interesting aspects of all this is that it's also a strategic question now for lawyers to if they consult clients whether they should mainly focus on the european union's the regulatory framework trying to get the case in front of the european of the court of justice of the european union or whether it's more about uh, the the convention and whether the right approach would be to go into this direction and very difficult to tell at least at the beginning and interestingly as you rightly mentioned quite some of the cases are with very prominent news services so that brings me back again to that there is also a strategic question behind all this is which is how should traditional media houses um, argue legally and politically in this whole domain thank you so much for this eric um i i really enjoyed the conversation as you certainly saw <laughs> um i i ask everyone please please again uh consult uh this paper you should really read it there's plenty of new argumentation in this uh already and then of course in particular if you really want to dig deeply into this um then look into this and also in and at last not least look into all the other publications that um eric kindly made available in many cases in an open access format so that it's very easy to to jump into this there's plenty of more material available for the moment uh thank you so much uh, to you eric thank you to everyone who listened to this uh, it was a pleasure i hope that all of us stay connected that you stay interested and that all of us stay as healthy as possible or become as healthy as possible as quickly as possible take care and all the best bye bye thanks a lot i enjoyed it a lot bye thank you.